Welcome to Writers Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the artistic director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. We recognize our obligation as settlers on this land to work to repair the harms perpetrated upon Indigenous communities and acknowledge the ongoing trauma colonialism has inflicted and continues to inflict on First Nations, Métis, and Indigenous peoples. Thank you for listening and for donating. Your support allows us to continue to celebrate and spotlight great writing and important ideas. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and I know wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between the festival's founder, Neil Wilson, and Elaine Dewar. Author, journalist, television story editor, Elaine Dewar has been honored with nine national magazine awards, including the prestigious President's Medal and the White Award. Her latest publication is On the Origin of the Deadliest Pandemic in 100 Years, an Investigation. In this compelling whodunit, she reads the science, follows the money, and connects the geopolitical interests to the spin. It's the latest book in the Biblioasis Field Notes series, which includes On Property by Ronaldo Walcott. Now, let's turn things over to Neil and Elaine. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Elaine, for um, coming on to Writers' Festival Radio and uh, talking about this very timely and important uh, book of journalism, investigative journalism, on the origin of the deadliest pandemic in a hundred years. I love the fact that you have made this a very human and personal story in some ways. It begins, of course, um, a hundred years ago, if you will, uh, and the Spanish flu of 1918 and 1919, and, and you say that it shaped your mother's life and your own. Could you explain that for us? Sure. Um in November, when uh, this virus was gathering its force in people in Wuhan, I buried my mother, age 102, um, and, and found myself reflecting then on the Spanish flu because it killed her mother when uh, my mother was one day short of her first birthday. And it was not known to my mother until she was 14 years old, that her stepmother was not in fact her biological mother, that her, her own mother had passed away. And, and that her entire family, so her father, her stepmother, her aunts, her uncles, her grandparents, her cousins, everybody had kept this truth from her until some person uh, sort of let it slip and she asked appropriate questions. That rocked her for the rest of her life. It, it created a, a sort of fundament of anxiety that she never quite got over. And when she told me the story, and I began to understand more about my mother having learned that story, uh, I, I became very concerned, let us say, with the power of secrets. And I think that is why I end up, ended up becoming a, a, a journalist, because that's what we do. We we haul secrets out into the open. Your challenge, however, uh, was made a thousand percent more difficult because everything was shut down. Exactly. So how did you how did you go about 
getting so much important, uh, crucial information to make your case? Well, at first I panicked. <laughs> when, I, when I realized that no one was going to take my calls, no one was going to answer my emails, that there were lots of people out there who had the information I needed and they were not talking, uh, I panicked. And then I thought, no, 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 this is the point at which IF Stone uh, becomes the person to follow and the practice to follow. So IF Stone was a, a, a legendary American journalist based in Washington who covered the politics uh, and scandals of, of Washington, not by sitting in bars and talking to lobbyists, not by getting person-to-person -person interviews with the President of the United States, but by reading public documents. So the virtue of science is that in order for it to move forward, scientists have to publish what it is they've, they've done. And so uh, it seemed to me that if I couldn't get a hold of a scientist because they wouldn't respond to my emails, all I had to do was read their published work. And that would tell me a whole lot about who they were and what they were and what they'd done. And so that's what I did. However, the question remains, uh, after many, many months of being stonewalled and going to the public records, why and how, uh, Elaine, did we get here? How did we find ourselves with this tragic, dark disease infecting the entire planet? Well, that's a question that needs to be dealt with, I think, in two parts. The, the first part is how did we get to, you know, we're now enduring wave four in this country. Uh, other countries have had far more deaths, but, you know, uh, we made a lot of mistakes. A lot of countries made a mistake, but the original mistakes were made in China where the first reaction to people coming into the Wuhan hospitals with a very strange and very deadly pneumonia that did not respond to the usual treatments. Um, instead of actually trying to quickly get to the heart of it, Chinese officials basically suppressed information about it. So the first uh, examples of SARS-CoV-2 uh, presented themselves to doctors in early December, probably the first day of December is the first known case. And so doctors in hospitals who couldn't figure out what they were dealing with sent samples out to three different commercial labs to see if they could sequence the samples and find out what kind of whatever was circulating in those patients' lungs. So three major genome sequencing commercial labs realized that they were dealing with an unknown SARS-type coronavirus. And that information was rapidly sent up the food chain to the head of, of China's CDC and its National Health Commission, who promptly did nothing. They did nothing until December 30th, when uh, a publication called ProMed, uh, having picked up on what was going on in social media, began to publish that there was a circulating pneumonia of unknown origin in Wuhan, and it was rapidly gaining steam. From that point forward, China shifted to a narrative shaping uh, strategy. And in fact, at, at that point, um, the chief person familiar with coronaviruses in China, a woman by the name of Xi Zhengli, 
at the Wuhan Institute of Virology was told to get on a train, leave Shanghai and come back to Wuhan to quote, deal with it. Dealing with it turned out to, to mean sequencing the genome. So samples were sent to various uh, leading persons in, in the field, but the government of China did not publish that genome until two scientists, uh, one an academic scientist at Fudan, another his colleague in Sydney who also had an appointment in, in Fudan, in Shanghai, published the genome on an Edinburgh blog called virological.org. As soon as the, the genome was published, uh, then suddenly Chinese officials also published the genome on, on sites normally uh, used for publishing flu uh, viruses, genomes. And by the 14th of January, China was well aware that it had a pandemic on its hands. None of that was conveyed uh, to anyone outside of officialdom. Uh, and until the 20th of January, no official recognition of human to human transmission was made, although that was clearly known from December. So China slowed everybody down. China did not, as it should have done under international health regulations, did not notify the WHO of what was going on. The WHO heard about it and came in and said, tell us what's going on. And basically they got stonewalled. By the 31st of January, an epidemiological paper was studied which showed that the pandemic had already been seeded in the major cities in China, which had direct connections all over the world, and that therefore the cat was out of the bag. However, the WHO chose not to declare a pandemic for a further six weeks. And in that six week period, actually the period following the 14th of January, people were allowed to go everywhere and anywhere. And in particular, up until the lockdown of Wuhan on the 23rd of January, leading up to the, the largest uh, annual holiday in China, the, the New Year Festival, millions of people were allowed to move around on planes, on trains, and, and the rest of us from that point forward were in deep doo-doo. So that's the first part of the story. We have the second part of the story, which is that our own officials in this country failed to recognize the obvious and act on it. I mean, if you see on television, as I did, and as I'm sure you did, the government of China building field hospitals at a death-defying rate in Wuhan from the 20th of January, you would think that Canadian officials might say to themselves, oh, this could be a problem, a serious problem. But instead, what they said repeatedly over and over again was the risk to Canadians is low. Utter nonsense. And, and because of that other nonsense, we did not shut our borders quickly. We did not take effective uh, action to restore our, our piles of PPE, which had been let to rot both in Ontario and federally. Um, we made a hash of it. So that was how it got going in this country, how it got going in the United States, how it got going in the rest of the world. And uh, a lot of people have a lot to answer for. In other words, <clears throat> uh, there was a complete breakdown of trust 
between science, politics, and let's call it the common good. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think politicians kept standing up and saying, we're relying on the science. And of course, the science from the middle part of January was uh, just a roiling bag of argument, as science always is, with something new. Nobody knows what it is. It has to be studied. Different people will come to different opinions about what it is that's going on and what it means. Um, and strangely enough, in spite of what we know about how science works, an argument, everybody stood up and kept saying, well, you know, there's a consensus that this, this thing, this, this new virus has spilled over from probably bats and um, anybody who suggests that it could have arrived in our midst in a different way uh, is a conspiracy theorist. And the leading science journals of our day, that would be Science, Nature, The Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, published pieces which basically said that. And they published those pieces that were written by people who had you know, great reputations, but had vested interests that they were set to protect. Holy mackerel, that's... That sounds like uh, collusion of the, uh, the highest order. I don't know if I'd say collusion, but I, I would certainly say massive undertaking in narrative shaping. And we have to ask why it is that our leading science journals allowed that to happen. And after being told what was going on, you know, did not act for months and months and months to clarify uh, those early publications and to clarify that there were competing interests not declared on those competing on the, on those publications. It took more, more than a year and a half for, for The Lancet to acknowledge that a statement published in February of 2020 had been crafted by a person named Peter Dajak who is the president of a New York-based charity called Echo Health Alliance, who had been uh, channeling money from the USAID, from the National Institutes of Health in the US, from NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease in the US, which is headed by Dr. Fauci, to one of two labs in Wuhan, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which has been studying uh, coronaviruses since 2003, since the first SARS infection. Six, six people who signed that letter, inclu including uh, Dr. Dajak, did not explain that they had any interest in any connection whatsoever with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they, they, um, which is astonishing to me. And it took The Lancet until, I believe it was July of, uh, of this year, to actually add to that letter a notice from Dr. Dajak that he had a competing interest. The others working with Echo Health Alliance or on the board of Echo Health Alliance who also signed did not add to their uh, declarations of competing interests. It was simply Dajak alone who mentioned there was a tiny wee problem. I mean, that should never happen. 
So in other words, you're saying that uh, <clears throat> these publishers and scientists consciously, willingly allow themselves to be corrupted just so that they might uh, uh, be, on, be on the side of one of the largest funders uh, and publishers in the world, namely China. Exactly. Is all of this money transfer, obviously that's... We're not talking about a small amount of money, no. first of all. Echo Health Alliance has taken in a hundred million bucks since 2009, which it has redirected to various um, third-party laboratories, some in the United States, a significant number around the, around the world, ostensibly to try and do studies which will predict when a virus might spill over into human populations. USAID created that program in 2009 after a big flu pandemic uh, circulated around the world and people were very concerned about flu. USAID's PREDICT program failed 100% of the time to predict any of the pandemics that then followed. So we're talking about MERS in 2012. No, missed that. We're talking about Ebola in West Africa, 2014 to 2016. Oops, missed that. We're talking about Zika that went from being an innocuous nothing that was restricted to Uganda into a worldwide pandemic that created microcephaly in babies born to women who were bitten by the wrong mosquito. Uh, they, they failed to, to, to capture them all. But what they didn't fail to do was get significant amounts of money into Columbia University to do certain kinds of studies, into the Wuhan Institute of Virology and various other institutions like that around the world. A hundred million bucks is a lot of money. Now, <clears throat> is, is the science of virology a relatively new uh, form of, of research? The science of virology goes back. Um, we've known about viruses for quite some time. We've become much more adept at understanding viruses as genome sequencing has taken off and as synthetic biology uh, has come to the fore. Synthetic biology is when you create a virus from its genome sequence alone, or a bacterium for that matter. The first one that was recreated from genome sequence alone was the virus that killed my grandmother. Um, it was done in the CDC after the genome was finally sequenced uh, around the turn of the millennium. The other one that was done quickly was polio. And now the speed of this science has grown so tremendously that as soon as the SARS-CoV-2 genome was made public, a group in Switzerland was able to make the virus from scratch in one week flat. Jeez. Yeah. So why would somebody, a researcher um, at the CDC, synthesize uh, a flu, uh, the virus, the, the 1918 flu, that killed your grandmother, that uh, basically it's gone, it's old, it's disappeared ah, from but circulation. It might come back. And so the argument is that in order to understand how a virus behaves, 
You need to get it into the lab. You need to mess with it. You need to in infect various kinds of cells with it and see will it, what it will do. You need to allow it to adapt to different kinds of hosts to see how many hosts it can adapt to in order to understand that you need to play with it. Well, you, you say uh, early on in, in uh, the origin, <clears throat> synthesizing the original form of a virus that killed 50 million people is called a rescue. And that's like calling an election loss a landslide win and expecting others to believe it. Right. So what's happening? I mean, it seems to me, uh, as, a, a, as an inquisitive uh, former journalist, there's, there's something going on, and I, I certainly don't want to uh, suggest there's a conspiracy here led by China and maybe the United States to have some kind of opportunity to not only prevent these deadly viruses, but to keep them nearby, close at hand, to use in some kind of geopolitical uh, necessity? Well, okay, so these dangerous pathogens have a dual use. So if we're talking about Ebola, which has now two vaccines out there that can be used, hopefully, to suppress it, um, not very well, but better than nothing. And some treatments, not very good, but better than nothing. These viruses are real threats and dangers to the human beings who are uh, exposed to them. The question becomes, what can you do about it? And, and how else can it be used? So these kinds of works are called experiments with dual use of concern, meaning they can either be experiments that lead to knowledge that protects us in future, or they can lead to bioweapons that will not protect us in future, but which might be of an advantage to someone, or they can lead to knowledge that a military can use to protect its troops from that kind of bioweapon. So this kind of research is both useful and dangerous. Dangerous in that at every step along the way, when we're talking about trying to sample bats, which are carriers of multiple horrible pathogens that don't seem to kill them off. So if you're trying to study those pathogens and you trap those bats and you bring their feces and these bats and their blood and their urine back to your lab, at every step along the way, you run the risk of infecting your students who are doing this work for you, or having a, a, an experiment go awry in a lab. And we know that lots of experiments go awry in labs, especially with students. Or simply, you know, if you're sloppy about how you do this work, if you're not properly protected, uh, you can bring it back. And in the case of SARS-CoV-2, which can be transmitted asymptomatically, as in you can transmit it without appearing to be ill and without in fact being ill, you can find yourself in a hell of a mess. And, and honestly, I think that's exactly what's happened here. Well, that, let's, let's uh, take a closer look at that. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, uh, Elaine, can you share uh, what you discovered uh, in, in terms of a relationship between the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg? 
and maybe some military, Chinese military connection there. Sure. It's not fair to say that I discovered it. What is correct is that um, Winnipeg reporters, so Karen Paul's at the CBC in Winnipeg, and uh, Dylan Robertson at the Winnipeg Free Press, have been on that story since 2019, when two uh, researchers of Chinese origin, Chang Yu Qiu and her husband, Ketting Chang, were marched out of the National Microbiology Lab, their uh, adjunct status at the University of Manitoba cut off, and their security clearance, which you must have to work in, in a level four, to work in, in that lab at all, uh, was retracted. So of course, Winnipeg reporters, this story gets picked up and they're saying, what the heck, what, what happened here? Government of Canada through the Public Health Agency of Canada, which has oversight over that laboratory, uh, said, oh, you know, nothing to worry about here. Policy matters, maybe an administrative concern, nothing to worry about. That went on, you know, nothing to worry about for months uh, until Karen Pauls uh, got access to information uh, responses to a bunch of queries and learned that on the one hand, Sheng Yu Qiu had been to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and possibly Beijing five times between 2017 and the time she was marched out of the lab. And also that the National Microbiology Lab had sent 15 strains of Ebola, uh, I think two strains of Nipah, which is even worse than Ebola, and uh, some glycoprotein. So the protein, the, the active part of the uh, Ebola virus that is grabs onto a host cell. And they had done that uh, just a few months before these two guys were marched out of the lab. So the assumption was that something about that send had led to their uh, being withdrawn from the lab. I then started to look at Cheng Yu Q and Kenning Cheng's publications. I mean, I tried to reach them. They wouldn't respond to me. They wouldn't respond to Garrett Falls. They wouldn't talk to anybody. So I decided I needed to trace their history, uh, their publication history, in order to follow how they got to Winnipeg, where they came from originally, to go beyond what they'd already published about themselves on places like LinkedIn, which wasn't much. And when I did that research, when I pulled out their papers and looked at who they were publishing with, uh, in the first instance, I believe Amir Adaran had, had mentioned to Karen Pauls that they had some kind of connection to the Chinese military. One paper was mentioned. In fact, there were an abundant number of papers uh, and the most shocking to me were two papers done with a person by the name of Chen Wei, who is a major general in the People's Liberation Army. She's not just some low-level military doctor. She is their leading bioweapons expert, their leading expert on Ebola, and had been um, given a lovely prize by Xi Jinping in a very public way for her work on SARS-CoV-2. Jeez. Yeah, geez. So you ask the question, uh, how does it happen that a bunch of military scientists, and we're talking at least nine papers, uh, from a government, not our friend, gets access to our only level four, 
to do experiments that are clearly of benefit to the government of China, not so much to the government of Canada. And when we, don't, we simply don't have answers to that question, other than a generalized statement from PHAC saying, you know, global cooperation on science is a valuable thing. We, we should do this. So this Canada then is complicit uh, because they were bowing to some uh, economic pressure from China? don't know what the pressure was and it may be, have been no pressure in the beginning. This relationship started with a fellow named George Gao, who is now the head of the China CDC and a leading uh, virologist in 2014-2015. But by the next year, there's Chen Wei uh, having the National Microbiology Lab do a study that could not be done in China. It couldn't be done in China because it's level four was not yet finished. And even when it was finished, uh, it was unable to get permission to import Ebola, which is not endemic to China, to be studied in that lab. So in order for them to check out their own Ebola vaccine uh, and to do experiments on um, antibodies that might be effective against Ebola, they needed to have access to a level four. And guess whose they used? Well, that mm. would be ours. Did they have security clearance? Like the no one will answer this question. Well, you know, obviously, uh, we can say governments and scientists uh, messed up big time. Can we go on and say that? Well, when sometimes when politicians and governments and scientists screw up, they cover up. Is, is this a cover up? Yes, this is a cover up. And you have a few thousand pages outstanding on a, an access to information request you made. Tell I us have about eight, 8,000 pages. I wanted to, in the beginning, I just wanted to establish for myself the, the safety status of our level four, because there's been plenty of problems with, with safety status in level fours in the United States, even in Fort Detrick, which had uh, a problem in the fall of 2019 and had to shut down for three months. You know, bad stuff has happened at level fours. There have been leaks from level fours. And in fact, in our level four, there was a leak in their first year of operation and another one sometime later. So I was asking the question, you know, how, how can we establish whether these labs are safe? And the answer in this country, Canada is wonderful at not actually publishing important information. We have a, a publishing system on lab accidents that is so generalized that you cannot look at that paper and find out what kind of accidents happened, where they happened, and why they happened. You get a generalized aggregate and no actual detailed information about what happened where. So in order to find out about the NML, I filed an access to information request and said, I want everything you've got on accidents and incidents from 2015 to 2020. Nothing happened for months. When I got impatient, I was told, these documents have been put on paper and sent to Ottawa where they will be redacted. And I'm saying, in paper? What are you talking about? Paper? Nobody works on paper anymore. Well, in this instance, they're working on paper. There are 8,000 pages, and I'm still waiting for that access uh, information, information uh, request to be completed. 
I asked for that information in July of 2020. It's supposed to be a 30-day turnaround. And of course, the government called an election. They certainly did. And that means that any questions that you have, other journalists have, uh, that by law, some of this information should be turned over to the public, this whole thing is dead. No, I wouldn't say it's dead. Um, the question of why uh, Shang Yu and Kenning Cheng were fired has been followed up relentlessly by the Canada-China uh, Relations Committee, who started asking for documents about that firing. They, they were suspended in July of 2019. They're not actually fired until January of 2021. And in that interim period, they continued to publish papers which means they continue to have access to data in spite of their secret clearances being retracted. Um, anyway, to get back to the Canada-China Relations Committee, they wanted to get their hands on the unredacted documents explaining why these two were fired. Government said, no, can't do that. Government said, finally, uh, you know, maybe we'll show it to a special committee uh, that deals with security issues that is appointed by the Prime Minister and reports to the Prime Minister and can have its work censored by the Prime Minister. At that point, the committee went to the full House and a resolution was passed requiring the Public Health Agency of Canada to produce the documents and requiring the President to personally produce them and failure to produce them would lead to admonishment. So he came to the Bar of Parliament and he did not produce the unredacted documents and he was admonished. The speaker then had to decide whether to send the sergeant at arms to his office to grab those documents. And at that point, the house rose for the summer and before it could resume, boom, we have an election. So the question becomes, what will happen now? And I put it to you that I think the Canada-China Relations Committee will be recreated. They will go back to the house they will ask for the same resolution, and then we'll see what happens. Elaine, you you began this investigation of the origin of uh, the SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, um, because you know you wanted to hold people and institutions accountable. They're not accountable. Can they ever be held accountable? And you know, let's distinguish between accountable places and non-accountable places. So in the United States, President Trump and his uh, government were definitely held accountable. He lost the election, probably because of his utter incompetence at dealing with this pandemic. In this country, we have a particularly adept civil servants uh, when it comes to not actually producing the documents that Canadians are entitled to see by law. We, in this country, do not have accountability. We have what is called responsible government. And in the parliamentary tradition, if a minister uh, allows things to go on in their department, which uh, do not redound well to the public wheel, it is expected that the minister will resign. The minister is responsible for everything that goes on in that minister's department. We have seen 
only one resignation to date over the horrendous failures in this country to deal appropriately and quickly with this pandemic. One. And something's got to change there. Oh, it seems like globalization, you know, free trade, uh, you know, when it comes to certainly many of us feel that, that it's a total mistake to erase borders. And I don't know how you feel about, you know, bi the biological sciences now. The um, biological sciences are a prime example of the globalization of science, which on the one hand sounds marvelous. Best minds working with best minds, how can we lose? But the answer is that we do not live in a global governance system in which there is some regulatory authority that deals with everybody. We live in nation states with varying degrees of regulatory control. So for example, when it comes to doing what are called gain of function experiments, in which you take a virus and make it more transmissible or more lethal to humans or to other animals, we have no regulatory control of that in this country. We allow biosafety officers in licensed facilities to decide whether or not a, an experiment that's proposed is safe to do. In the United States, however, there is a regulatory system. Of course, that regulatory system was got around in the case of the study of SARS-type viruses by Echo Health Alliance funding work in Wuhan that could not be done in the same level of lab in the United States. In the United States, if you're gonna womp up a SARS-type virus and make it more infectious and, and lethal, it has to be done in what's called a, a BSL-3, a Biosafety Level 3 Enhanced Lab under very serious rules. China, not so much. So if you can do the experiment in China, good on you. That's the problem oh. of globalization in a nutshell. Well, I think this is a, a good note for us to um, uh, say goodbye. And again, Elaine, thank you so much for your, uh, your meticulous uh, journalism here in this uh, incredible book. Thank you. That was Neil Wilson in conversation with Elaine Dewar. Her latest book on the origins of the deadliest pandemic in 100 years and investigation is available now. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. The only thing better than buying a great book is buying one from a great independent bookseller. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Music